Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Here's a song that uh, is from the new album Frenzy, which is out on Monday. Monday has been officially declared Frenzy Day, so however we wish to uh, express this frenzy of feeling, you can do it your own way. You can be quite sort of mild-mannered about it. I mean, I could just be standing here sort of going, that's frenzy, or I could be going, and that's frenzy too. We did a lot of great shows in that time, and I think we really began to build a live following. They gave it a whirl. The band probably peaked in a way as a live band at that time. It was probably the most energetic, fired up, an interesting period for the band, I think. saw split ends back in Australasia after three years of limited success in England. During a 26-date Australian tour in February, the new album Frenzy was released and sold relatively poorly. Icy Red, their previous single, had received a decent amount of airplay and sold well, but it wasn't included on the album. Split ends keyboard player Eddie Rayner. These days... A band like that would just be probably dropped, you know, he had had such limited success for such a long period of time. I mean, we had Mental Notes, Second Thoughts, Dysrhythmia, Frenzy, four albums, no success. And I think it was probably the live thing that kept the, that kept the flame burning for not just for ourselves, but for the record company, you know. Singer and songwriter Tim Finn. We went back to Australia and we were accepted back there by our fans and by the crowds and that and we were filling pubs and it's a really exciting stage. I've always thought it was the most exciting stage of any band is just before they make it big and the fans all feel it and the crowd feels it and there's this amazing energy and you're getting a thousand people in the pub or whatever. We just felt something was really, really on. You know, it was either on or it was well off and that's a good way to be sometimes. As a song, now listen, how you feeling boys? Noel, you alright? Of course you are. Neil, feeling up to scratch, good lad. Malcolm, are you alright too? Give us a smile, Malcolm. How are you, Nigel? A grin will do. And of course, Eddie Rayner on the keyboard. Oh, he's gold, I'm good as gold. Well, I'm feeling bold as brass myself. Alright, let's get funky with Noel. Try a little bit of Eddie Rayner now. Come on, take us back up again, Eddie. I can remember at the time the intense jamming that went on, and a lot of it was—I'm sure it was to do with Tim. You know, Tim was—if um, Tim was into it, Tim was up performing well. 
feeling good about the band and himself, then, you know, the shows are always good. Clapping our hands, we can bring the proceedings to a very pleasant close. So let's get with the bassist Nigel Griggs. You really felt that there were so many people out there coming to the shows that all we had to do was make a half decent record, and we all the audience were there. Good night, Narrabi. Good night. We have to go and have a rest. Thank you very much, it's been one of the best. Come on, put your hands together. Spitenzer's dire financial position and the lack of work available to them in the UK convinced the band to stay put in New Zealand for a few months before heading back to Australia. In Auckland, they spent time recording demos of new songs at Harlequin Studios. I fall apart when you're around I show it, I know it I can't pretend that I'm not down When you're here, I'm nowhere I've been a fool More than once, more than twice I'm gonna move to a new town Where the people are now the original demo we did for that song. The verse was a piano melody. We were staying up in Titarangi at somebody's house. I started messing around on the piano and then I wrote the chorus on the guitar. I didn't consciously know where it was coming from, but afterwards I kind of realised that, you know, that it came from the thing where I rang up Phil and, and his wife answered the phone and I just said, oh, it's Phil there, I'd like to say day," and, and she came back and said he doesn't want to talk to you. So that was, you know, I guess the start of the emotion for that song came from that. I was pretty hurt by that. But it just sort of grew and became a bit more generalised, I suppose. But yeah, and it was a bit of piano and a bit of guitar, which is very me, really. That's the way I still write. It should be possible, I know, to see you But I can see
that original, I Hope I Never, I really like that original one. It comes from the same session as um, Two of a Kind, which I also really like. This 
This is your last chance to see Split Ends before they split and Z for some time. The Split Ends Farewell Party at Main Street. Monday, June 25 at 8.30. Tickets 580 from Main Street or the Record Warehouse, Durham Street. By now, John Hopkins from Michael Gdynski's mental management company had been replaced by a new tour manager. They had massive debts, and I would argue that the debts were created by the band's indifference and by lacklustre management prior to my arrival. Nathan Brenner. When I took over, I had to make the calls to the equipment suppliers to set up a tour, and they were to the lighting companies and the sound amplification companies, the travel companies, Uh, and I discovered, much to my dismay, that in actual fact, uh, every phone call I made, oh, we're not going to give split ends anything, they owe us money. Oh, we're not going to give, there's a huge debt. Oh, they owe $3,000 in accommodation. And I did the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. I said to the, the creditors in Australia, well, you can let them tour, and I will personally guarantee, stupid me, to pay off their debts as well as pay their ongoing costs in relation to hiring current hire. And so I went basically personal guarantor for the entire tour, you know, which is pretty pretty silly. And uh, the band arrived in Australia. We sat down and, and I laid it all out to them. I said, well, there are all these debts. And within five minutes, they broke up. Oh, we've had a, we didn't know, and, you know, they were coming over to Australia to do a tour and, you know, they thought they could make a bit of money. They didn't realise any of this stuff. In addition, the previous management hadn't been uh, proactive in advising them of their tax position. The band had been paid advances or wages, but never paid tax for year after year after year after year. So th- this was sort of like, you know, tour managing in a minefield. Every- everywhere I turned, there was a potential bomb. The previous management, who was also the record company and publisher and whatever, all I wanted to do, I believe, it's my opinion, was to take the last drop of them, to squeeze them dry, having no record deal, having no international publishing deal, and to get one last tour out of them before piffing them away. We resolved that we would do a, what is that time, it was regarded as the last tour, although it was never really mentioned as the last tour. It was about a seven-week tour, I think. It was very effective. We paid off the debts. The band made a bit of money. They made wages. Every, all the books were done properly. Everything was very successful. That was the upswing on our fortunes, really. We came back and actually made money from a live tour, which was unheard of. Guitarist and second singer-songwriter in Split Ends, Neil Finn. And we were getting full houses and the band was playing great and we had Nathan who was really seemed very happening and together and, yeah, felt like things were on the up and up. The next song sums up the situation for all of us because whatever the day of the week is and however we feel, we're all pretty well, by and large, all together, constantly in the wars. And here's a song which calls up the guy. Thank you, boys. On the bass guitar all the way from England and he wasn't able to work for two weeks but he's back with us and we missed him, Mr Nigel Griggs on the bass guitar, thank you. And the other man who's been in the wars lately is our drummer Malcolm Green. He also had to wait two weeks before he was allowed to work again but he's now allowed to work again and for that we thank the man who made it possible. 
October 1979, it was time to record a new single, Eddie Rayner. Frenzy had gone nowhere. Frenzy had done nothing, really. And we decided that we would go in and self-produce things. Bad move. <laughs> Self-production. Neil Finn. It was a blatant attempt to do a single. I mean, I didn't write it like that. It was like just a song. I was, I was writing very simple songs just by virtue of the fact I was young and new to it. Definitely were looking for a single that would be successful, you know, so, and, and as such, it was probably a bit of a failed recording, really. It, was, it wasn't successful, and it wasn't a very good recording, so it was kind of like neither. Neil, at that point, was just writing really, really catchy, little, nice songs. And, and of course, his voice, yeah, I mean, his voice was just, he was just finding his voice at that point. Nathan Brenner. I believe that Neil was a, a consummate writer, but that he was being held back by his adoration of his brother. I wanted it to be a competition. See who can write the best. It's not better than, it's different compared to. And try and excel. And if possible, try and write together. We were living in a house together, Tim and I, in Rose Bay, and I just remember being there during the day, throwing titles at each other not really writing together, but just kind of feeding off each other a little bit, and then rehearsing those songs with the band up in Bondi somewhere. Tim Finn. Songs usually come out of, for me, they've always come out of my life, my relationships, things that happened, you know, and things that I've experienced. And, and you, you sometimes you find a way of hiding that, and other times you just lay it out, you know. Things that I've feared. I mean, somebody once said, the key to anybody's work is ask yourself, what do they fear? And you can hear a, a lot of the fears in these songs. What I recognise in them is that they should be more contemporaneous with their material. And that's why I was talking to Tim and the band about the relationship between media. That is to say, if there's a film about a certain thing that's popular, then that idea is in the public's mind. And the analogy I used was Jaws. And that's where you get Shark Attack from, right? got to realise that firstly there was never going to be an album and I actually guilted the record company by making certain facts known to them about financial matters and eventually they ponied up with I think $38,000 for the album, something in that vicinity 
This time, Split Ends insisted on working with record producer and engineer David Tickle. Well, see, we'd already done Icy Red with David, and, we, and it was madness that we didn't do Frenzy with him, really, when I think back. But anyway, we didn't. But Icy Red was the, by far the most successful single we'd had in Australia. It was a different audience than we'd ever had before. Younger kids, and we'd hear people on the street singing, Icy Red, Icy Red, Icy Red. It was exciting. It wasn't like being an art school band with a few intellectual f- fans thinking really heavily about the lyrics. It was kind of pop and fun and immediate. We loved the sound of it and the whole energy of it and you know, wanted to pursue that more. And David had been working with Mike Chapman in L.A. with Blondie just before coming out to work with us. So he had all the nows he got from Chapman to, to produce a pop record for a band, you know, how to make the drums sound crisp and fat and how to you know, get the performance out of the band. And, yeah, it was the right thing we needed at the time. We, had, we wanted to believe in him as the wunderkind, you know, and believe that he had the luck about him. In New York... David Tickle was approached by head of Mushroom Records, Michael Gidinski. And he said, we're going to make another record. He said, how would you like to produce it? And this is the guy that you know, 18 months before had turned me down. And um, within two weeks, I was flown out to Australia to come make the very first album with the band, which was the True Colors record. Great. He was a great producer at that time, and for us, just the right guy, you know. Came in, he was very enthusiastic about the songs that we'd written, and he was really barefaced about talking commercially about the music, and when it was refreshing for us to have that kind of enthusiasm and that kind of focus and angle, you know. We were up for it, ready for it. David Tickle joined Split Ends for pre-album rehearsals on the Gold Coast, hiring a venue in Kulangata called The Playroom. One of the days that we're in there, um, I, put, I turn the PA on, and everyone's just getting their instruments on. And um, Neil starts playing this guitar note, going down, 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 down. And I went, "Stop! What, what's that? What's that, Neil?" And, and he goes, uh, 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 "B flat." And I went, "No, the song. What is the song you're playing?" He says, "It wasn't. It was just B flat." And I said, "Oh my God." Try just just modulating that from down, 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 down. Malcolm, just start hitting the kick drum, just boom, 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 boom. So within about 30 seconds, out of nowhere, we had this groove. <laughs> 
and then brought the snare drum in. And we had the whole groove now for I Got You for the intro and the first verse. I got you. That's all I want. I won't forget. That's a whole lot. I don't go out. Not now that you're in. Sometimes we shout. But that's no problem. And I said, oh, guys, this sounds great. I don't know where it's going to go, but this is sounding really good. And everyone got pretty excited with it. They could feel the energy in it. And Neil says, well, you know what? I have this other song that I haven't been able to finish. It's just a chorus right now. Then we needed a bridge for the song, for a solo, and it was actually Eddie's idea. Eddie said, hey guys, there's a song we wrote four years ago that we never used, and that's where that crazy bridge came from, which I still to this day is one of the, my favorite bridges I've ever recorded. November 1979, Split Ends began recording in Melbourne's Armstrong Studios. They were excited about the new songs and David Tickle's arrangement ideas. Nigel Griggs. We went into a massive studio and uh, he had us set up in a really small circle in the middle of this massive studio, which was smart to start with, keeping us very tight. And he'd virtually conduct from within. I mean, i never seen a producer get out of his chair or out of his control room, you know. And he was, David was actually out there sort of conducting and pushing Mal quite hard to keep it simple. I tried to get into a feeling where I could basically dance to the song. I have some kind of motion with it. So I actually would stand in front of Malcolm while he was playing drums and move so that if I felt something was going to trip me up, everyone could see it and feel it instantly. So it kind of kept everyone in a groove. <laughs>
Drummer Mal Green. That was our turning point of maturity. I mean, I remember each album. I thought, yeah, yeah, we got it. Well, that's a hit. Um, and then we do something else, and, I, and then I realised, no, we, we weren't there yet. And um, I remember True Colours. It, it just felt, from a rhythm section point of view, it's suddenly like, wow, hey, suddenly we got it. convoluted complex song structures as much as you could I mean how much further could you go than under the wheel or nightmare stampede or whatever so you know really there was nowhere else to go but to bring it back to simplicity plus we wanted to get get a couple of hit singles under our belt and, and see what that felt like and get the band right up there you know so yeah it was conscious and intentional it was also um, coming from the creative side of us because the Beatles were our main influence and they were the masters of the short three minute song so you know we, in a way we were kind of Getting back to our roots. What's the 
the matter with you reminded me of a 60s Beatles song, or someone actually said at the time, The Hollies. But that song had a, a fabulous energy, but we decided to do it as a duet with Tim singing the choruses and Neil singing the verses. Well, when we went to do the vocals, I just felt it sounded flat, this high-energy song, and it wasn't really kicking. So then I realized that what Tim was singing was very comfortable for him, and what Neil was singing was very comfortable for him in the verses. So I asked them to switch what they were doing and have Tim sing the verses and Neil sing the choruses. And at first it was like, oh, I don't know if we can do that because that's out of my range. I said, great, let's try it out. This was going to be an instrumental. So we set up with a little 808 drum box just to get a click track. And uh, we recorded the bass drum first, all the way through the song, and punching in and out, making sure that it's perfectly in time. And then we did the snare drum, then the hi-hat, and then any cymbals or toms that went with the drums. So everything was really perfectly in time. And we started to build this song up and started to stumble a little bit with where it was going to go. So we took a break for dinner one night and I turned on the TV in the control room and Jack Cousteau came up. Eddie Rayner. There was a documentary showing called The Coral Sea and I was just like playing these chords and watching the TV at the same time. Then it suddenly occurred to me and said let's do this like a soundtrack to an underwater show like this Jack Cousteau thing. Eddie, let's work on this shoal of fish. So I need a sound that sounds like a shoal of fish. That song eventually became um, the Coral Sea. Prior to that was called Spunky Sheila. <laughs> the reason why the album was called True Colors is because every song, I was talking to them about what colour instrument we needed to fit the picture. As on uh, I Got You, for example, that guitar part at the beginning, that sounds very purple to me. And when the chorus comes in, it gets really nice and bright and shiny. I can hear the cymbals represent kind of yellow, kind of sunlight. And it is keyboard part, kind of wow. Well, that to me, when I heard that sound, that was the perfect kind of burnt orange smoky colour that I was looking for and that's when towards the end of the record the band decided to call the album True Colours because that's what we talked about the entire album. When it came to the mixing stage David Tickle's stripped back colour scheme didn't allow for what had once been an essential part of the split end sound Noel Crombie's percussion tracks. Oh, I got rid of most of them. You know but I can remember things that I quite liked and uh came up with this thing of scraping around a gong, you know, sort of... <laughs> that sounds really shit hot. He's going, nah, can't have that. Sounds like a record player breaking down, you know, gone. 
Neil Finn. We went into the control room. Tickle used to play things at deafening volume, but it just sounded really good and really energetic, and they just leapt forward from the speakers, and so we, it was a really easy record to make. Split Ends manager, Nathan Brenner. Every day we wanted to be in the studio. Every day we wanted to record, and we're doing it with a David Tickle, who the record company didn't want, but they you know, eventually said, yeah, just to get me out of their hair, and the band out of their hair, yeah, go away, just go away. Here's 38 grand, go away. You know, and go away and die, basically. They didn't. They weren't interested, they didn't come, they put bands in on top of us, they could care less, right? Anyway, so we finished the album, we finished the mixes, and I took the mixes up to the record company head, Michael Gudinski, and I played in the album. He went pale. He said, I've just wasted 38 grand, there's not a hit on it. And we all started to get a bit despondent, because again, we, we did really believe in the album, and we believed in the band, and then after Gudinski's remark, you know, it's like, well, what do you do? And we've been battling away for years and years. Nobody listens to a word that I say And it work, I'm just a foreman's tool And I said to him, um, well, Michael, you know, I might be very close to the project, but I Got You is a number one international hit. And I Hope I Never is a hit, as a ballad. And there are two other hits on the album as well. And he went, no, nah, wasted my money. Michael Kedinsky soon changed his view as people around him heard the album and loved it. At the end of 79, with True Colours scheduled for a January 1980 release, Neil Finn had a meeting with the record company boss and reported back to the other ends. God, they're so vibey and mushroom, right? Are they? Listen, Michael's just jumping around everywhere, eh? For real, Michael. Phil! How are you, boy? How are you, mate? <laughs> <laughs> it's just amazing, isn't it? No, he's just genuine vibe, but it's just, you know, it's totally over the top because he's, he's decided that he's going to be vibe, but but it's really funny. Oh, it's good. Nathan's got him like that, eh? Yeah. I'm, I'm sure. And um, Michael's not sure about the thing about I Got You as a single. Isn't he? And he's like, oh, I don't really know. I can't make up my mind. It's about New Zealand, he thinks it's fine, he just doesn't know about for Australia. The album's first single was decided by a band vote. Tim's ballad, I Hope I Never, was narrowly beaten by Neil's hook-laden, I Got You. The record was huge. The first time I realised it was going to be a hit was at Sharon's father's place in Auckland when we heard, I heard it on the radio for the first time, and it just sounded really good on the radio, and I thought, it's going to be a hit, I can just tell. And two weeks later it was. It was so, so quick. You know, it, the mind boggles about what makes things happen like that, but sometimes they do. Stars line up and you just can't explain it. Just people relate. Suddenly the planets lined up. We had a, a number one album and single for, I think it was about eight weeks. Uh, and that's a pretty awesome thing to have. So it was suddenly we're on track. It just wouldn't go away. It sat there for weeks. Week after week it was number one in Australia. True Colours widened our audience enormously. It suddenly brought all the kids and the young things in. And there was a pop songs for the young, and there was songs like I Hope I Never. And, and I think True Colours was a record that non-record buyers bought. You know, the people that buy one record a year, that was the record they bought that year. It was a, a confluence of uh, the right song at the right time, the right image for the band, the marketing of it 
very specifically was about Neil as a sex symbol, although, you know, the band didn't realise that, but because it was his first real song, uh, as a star, if you like, I wanted the camera to concentrate a little bit more on him, having previously been concentrating on Tim when he sang songs. Noel Crombie's videos for I Got You and I Hope I Never were played frequently on New Zealand and Australian television. In New Zealand, Ready to Roll captivated the pop audience. In Australia, the show to watch was Countdown. Australia generally had a lot of teen hysteria because of Countdown. We were right in the peak of the Countdown era and, you know, a huge single and lots of young girls following us around and screaming and the whole bit, really, being mobbed and going down the Burke Street Mall and being chased by girls and, yeah, the whole bit. I, I think it was fun and it was funny and enjoyable for a while, but in a way I was recoiling against it all the time as well. I don't think it really suited my personality all that much to be that visible all, all the time. So I kind of more and more stayed home because I would be a bit intimidated to go down to the dairy thinking I might run into a bunch of schoolgirls. Few groupies, for example, where they were kind of intellectual groupies. And what's an intellectual group? Well, someone's after our mind more than our bodies, you know, and they did get some of our bodies on occasion. But uh, let's say in Australia, I mean, you know, the Skyhooks, for example, and us, I mean, Skyhooks, I mean, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll in, in the most blatant style. But we weren't exactly kind of obvious sex symbols. Who did the art for your cover, Tim? The cover was uh, designed by Noel. Um, he got into his bedroom while we were doing the actual album and produced thousands of drawings and sketches and doodlings and things. And we thought, yes, OK, Noel, you might have something there. So we let him get on with it. And he came up with what we think is uh, probably our most striking cover ever. It's simple, but it catches the eye. And uh, I think that's all you can ask for, really. So thank yeah. you, Noel. You've done well. After I designed it, I thought, you know, it's such a basic thing, let's put it out in a few colours, and they oh, no, you know, you're going to fuse people, and I went, no, I just, come on, let's just do it, you know. And I knew full well that if it did take off, that people would go, no, I don't want this cover, I want that cover. But what that does is creates a stir at retail. The covers are different. Yeah, there's a red and green one, there's a, a purple and orange one, and there's a blue and yellow one. Uh-huh. <laughs> have we covered all the true colours? I've got two to go then. You have indeed. I got a wreath from Sony, because there were two territories where Pink Floyd never became number one on the wall, and that was Australia and New Zealand, because Split Ends locked them out, and legitimate sales of, of true colours were just going through the roof. Mushroom Records founder, Michael Gadinsky. True Colours was just a landmark album. It spawned so many hit songs and through that the whole band's career sort of renewed and rejuvenated and you know I got them a major deal in America with A&M Records which was fantastic because um, A&M at the time were a very creative label, it was a label that was half owned by a musician Herb Alpert. Two, three, four. Try and come on straight away on the melody now. Mm-hmm. 
With both True Colours and I Got You about to be released in North America and Europe, Split Ends prepared their next album. Tim Finn. We were feeling the pressure of following up True Colours, although we did so many shows and, you know, the band was strong internally from playing live, so we weren't too threatened by it. David Tickle returned to Australia to produce the follow-up LP, Waiata. In preparation, he mixed a few of their live shows in Sydney and Melbourne. It was a bit stressful when, when we did these shows because uh, the band's on stage playing this stuff and Tim was really in a bad mood and I couldn't quite understand until he said, OK, my brother's going to sing a song now, I got you. And the place just went ballistic. Neil was a total superstar in the eyes of the fans and the kids here. And it really got under Tim's skin. He was not a happy camper. That I remember quite clearly. True Colors turned out to be a harder act to follow than the ends had expected. For the Wyatt sessions, the band and their producer recorded again at Armstrong Audiovisual Studios, but the vibe had changed. Neil Finn. Inevitably, second records after that sort of thing are more difficult. Tickle was a bit more pumped up with his own legend, and we were probably not as well prepared, and there was a bit more angst in the songs. And and, and success is not everything you expect it to be, so you kind of it screws with you a little bit. Fame and ego and just lack of focus and the band doesn't become, isn't as insular anymore, it's more sort of affected by outside influences and more weight of expectation on a second record and, you know, I think, still think it was a good record and a lot of good songs in it, but it wasn't quite as um, immediate as the first one. Stay. 
was still, you know, a good album to make. We had some good songs again. I mean, Neil came through with, you know, One Step Ahead and History. And uh, it's a less favourite album for me in terms of my songs. Uh, I don't play any of those songs live. But we did play them at the time. Heartache to Follow, Ghost Girl, whatever. And um, I probably like Ghost Girl still after all these years. Pale as the sunrise and cold as the moonlight She suddenly glides into view Echoing footsteps, meandering laughter It's you Ooh. Every whisper reveals a dark secret The first and last Eddie Rayner. David Tickle Rayner, I mean, he's a, a lovely guy and uh, he was a good friend, but he was a bit of a space cadet. He used to have his pet rock, which went with him everywhere, and he, he saw as many ghosts in a week as you and I would uh, have hot meals, you know. It was while we were recording Ghost Girl, we made it to, Eddie made up this tape of really strange noises. <coughs> and um, I wonder if David will hear this, he probably will. It'll serve him right for being so gullible. And he left it in the reverb room, which is a little room off from the main studio where you, they stick a speaker and everything that comes out of that speaker sounds like it's in a big hollow echo chamber, you know. My ghetto blaster it had a timer on it. I set it up at three in the morning, knowing full well it would still be in the studio, and everybody would be completely stoned by then. And it was just incredible, because it worked like an absolute dream. We were mixing, and all of a sudden this massive scream came over. <laughs> the speakers were really loud. And the whole room just visibly went white. Dave jumped up and he ran out of the reverb room. And by the time he got there, it stopped. And I, was, I was pretty, like, scared wasn't really the right word, but um, I was definitely confused with what I was hearing here. And he put his hand on the, on the handle and gingerly walked in. And it was deathly quiet in there. It's just like this dark room with nothing happening in there. I knew that after a minute or so that it was going to start again, so I had to get him out within a few seconds, so I, like, come on, Dave, this guy, I grabbed him, I pulled him out, and it was just it was magical the way it happened. As soon as that door was closed, this horrendous sound came blasting through again <laughs> from the other side of the door. <laughs> and, and it was sort of like, Dave said, that's it, I'm going, I'm, I'm, I've gone. For the rest of the record, I was still very befuddled with the sound, and every now and again I'd hear something, but um, they never did let on. And since then, I've heard the story back from other producers from other countries that have got to know about the ghost in the studio at Melbourne.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.